Grab your Bibles this morning. Don't need that one, do we? No. All right. All right, Exodus chapter 34 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, so if you've got your Bible, open it up. If you do not have your Bible, uh, we'll wait. Go get it. Uh, whether that's on your phone, get an actual, like, in paper Bible, whatever you need. I want you following along. Don't just be lazy and watch what pops up on your screen like everything else. I want you to invest some energy in this thing this morning, all right? Uh, and uh, as... Hopefully you are part of a discipleship group, and in that discipleship group, I hope you are actually reading what you're supposed to be reading so that when you get together on a weekly basis, you're not just making stuff up. Uh, that is not the purpose of this. It's not just to check another box. It's to get God's Word in your life, in your heart, in your mind every single day so that you are gradually in this process of change. Now, God does an instantaneous change in us, makes us new creations, but we have a responsibility to work out this salvation um, according to Scripture. And what that looks like is we're not earning it any more than it's already been given to us, but we are strengthening our grip on this beautiful thing that God has given us, which is a relationship with Him. So, uh, Part of that is getting to know your Bible and understanding how it is put together, how it works, uh, how you can understand it. And so uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 1 through 20, I am going to be reading God's word for you this morning. And at the same time, I know that for me, when I hear it and I'm reading it at the same time, something goes in my head so much better that way. I know for many of you who are running school out of your house right now, uh, <laughs> that probably works for your kids. Guess what? If it works for them, it works for your brain too. So hear it, see it, get it going. Uh, multiple different things here. Exodus chapter 34, verse 1 through 20. Again, as we kind of go through this these set of passages in Exodus and understanding what it means being people of God. How do we, how do we understand what's written here and apply that rightly in our lives? Uh, there are some cautions. If you have not been with us over the course of the last two weeks, I do want you to pay attention to those. You can go back and look at the first two parts of this series and understand that there are some things in Exodus specifically that very clearly are for the people of Israel as they are going into the promised land. And some of those things are not things that we can just take and apply to us. However, there are so many promises and realities of who God is, what he says that we can take and say, you know what, as a child of God, he has not changed. And these promises, these pieces are absolutely still true for me today. So as we are going through, we do want to understand the difference between some of those things. But also, as we look at this today, I'm going to be asking a couple more questions of you. And I know last week, literally all we did was read scripture and ask some questions that I wanted you to process those. I hope that when you went to your small group this last week, uh, number one, I hope you went to your small group last week. <laughs> if you are not yet part of a small group, again, put small groups in the uh, chat and we will get you hooked up. We will find a spot for you. I think we have 11 small groups going right now. Um, and so if you do not yet have something that 
man, I, I don't know how to understand or who to have these conversations with. Get in a small group. We want you there. That is, man, if you want more Jesus in your life and you are wanting to grow, that is a great place to do that. If all you get is this hour on Sunday morning, then you are probably spiritually starving to death. And I don't want that for you. I want you uh, to be not only people that are well-fed by others, but people that begin to dig into God's Word and feast on what's there for yourself. And when you come up to something maybe you don't understand, you can bounce your brain off of other people's brains and begin to understand what God's Word said. Um, so I want you part of your small group. And I hope that as you got together with your small groups that, that you walk through those questions and really just, man, what is God asking of me? What is it that he is convicting me of? God, where are you showing me that you want me to move? So as we go into today, I, I want you paying attention again and writing down some of those questions. And man, I, maybe I don't have an answer right now, but God, I'm going to keep allowing you to ask that. I said, I ask like I'm from Kentucky or something. Uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, but ask those questions of me until I do have an answer. I'm not going to just look at you and then turn away. I want to keep my eyes focused on you. So Exodus chapter 34, verse 1 through 20, it says this, then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. What do you mean like the first ones? Well, the first time, if you remember, maybe you don't, maybe you've never read through this whole passage before, but Moses went up and he had this great time with God and God gave him the Ten Commandments and Moses was like, that's awesome. And then he goes back, this is Dusty's translation, by the way, goes back down and sees the people and the people thought that Moses had died up on the mountain. And so they said, well, hey, you know what? Our next leader, we'll just elect somebody. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to make a golden calf for us so we can worship it. Just the dumbest thing ever, right? Moses is up with God on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments, gives him the law. It's this awesome thing. Moses comes down like, guys, I got to, oh, what are you doing? I mean, literally, he is so, in, I know some of you this week have probably, you know, maybe come downstairs and watched your children do things like, what are you doing? I, I get that. Moses was in that spot. Like, that's the dumbest thing you could have figured out to do. That's the most destructive thing you probably could have ever figured out to do. And he's so ticked off in that moment that he takes the tablets that God wrote with his own finger and like threw them on the ground and broke, broke them because he was so angry. And there was specific judgment that came after that. And then, you know, the people still needed the law. So Moses was like, fine, I go back up the mountain, get more tablets. And this is where we're at right now. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one else may come with you. In fact, no one is to appear, to appear anywhere on the mountain. Do not even let the flocks or herds graze near the mountain. See, it's important to have some of that backstory because why would God say this? That Moses, I only want to talk to you. Everybody else needs to stay put and stay away. Why would God make a statement like that? Because they had done something immediately previous to this passage that separated themselves from God. They chose to worship something else. In the vacuum of leadership, when Moses was gone, 
The people didn't stay true to God. They weren't. All I have is Semper Fidelis in my mind. They, they were not honoring God. They did not stay in line with what God wanted. And they literally, in God's mind, basically had an affair on him. They cheated on God. And that brought distance in their relationship. And God said, I will deal with you in a little bit. There's only one of you that didn't do it, and that was Moses. So Moses, you get to come up to the mountain with me. I'm going to give you stuff for everybody, but everybody else, stay away for a little bit. One, I think God's a little bit ticked off right here. Righteously ticked off. Um, but I think he's also doing something to preserve them. Because if they were to come into his presence with that level of filth in their lives, their sin would have destroyed them. And so he said, you know what? You need to stay away. And so my question is this. What is keeping you from God's presence? Is there some crud in your life? Is there some brokenness of relationship? Is there decisions that you have made? Is there, are there things that you have allowed into your life because everybody else said it was okay that keeps you distant from God. God literally told the people, do not even step foot on the mountain. Don't even let your flocks and your herds come up here. I'll deal with you later. Moses, come to me. Maybe you're Moses and everything's perfect and you're just in this great relationship with God spot. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're not though. And so my question is, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is there something keeping me from your presence? And listen, I know that there are some outward things that we can do that check boxes. And well, I read my Bible today and I prayed today and I said good words today. But in our hearts, we might have some things that are truly out of line with God that maybe we're even unaware of. Maybe there's attitudes that we have for somebody else. Maybe there's permission we have given ourselves to think about other people in certain ways that God is saying, that thing is keeping you from me. You don't get to come close until you're willing to lay that down. And so what is keeping you from God? If, you, if nothing comes to mind but you feel distant from him, I would ask you to say, Lord, I want to lay my life before you. Evaluate me. Is there anything in me that is keeping me away from you? That is not like a, you know, a 13-second conversation. Maybe it is. Maybe God just smacks you over the head with something immediately, and you're like, well, yeah, that's true. That's super keeping me away. But maybe you have to think about it and pray about it and have your eyes open to how maybe blind you have been. What is keeping you from God's presence? The people sinned against God by making an idol while Moses was on the mountain. Is there anything in you that requires repentance right now? That's what I want you wrestling with. Because I don't want you far from God. I wholeheartedly believe that God does not want you far from him. He doesn't want there to be any distance between himself and you. He wants there to be intimate relationship. But everybody that's ever had any relationship knows that it is very easy for relationships to become damaged. And until we address that damage and what caused it, 
and repent of that, there will be no restoration. We can say sorry all day long. But until the problem is dealt with, that damage will remain. Verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Number one, Moses straight up beast mode. He's carrying stone tablets while climbing a mountain. I'm just saying that's hardcore boot camp reality stuff right there. Like, maybe I shouldn't have crushed those first ones. I don't know. I don't know if he's got regret. I think every step was like, but he did it. He, he, He did what God asked him to do. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Why did I say that loud? Because I don't think God whispered it to Moses. He was calling out his name and he said these words. I don't know as a parent if you've ever been in a spot where you have to remind yourself that you love your kids. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent if you've been there. It means you're a good parent. Amen. Uh, And sometimes we have to remind ourselves, I love these children. I think this was God in that spot. I forgive. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, but who I am does not change. I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And maybe you hear that and think, well, isn't God just a big jerk? Maybe you didn't pay attention to what he said before. You see, he lavishes forgiveness and mercy and compassion He is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. What a generous God I see in this passage. Maybe you don't. Maybe all you see is that, oh man, well he revisits the sins of the father to their sons of the second and third and fourth generation. Who would do something so mean? Who has the capability of loving to a thousand generations? I don't even have the ability to stay alive for a thousand generations. I hope to see grandchildren. I would love that. If I get to see great-grandkids before I am done breathing, that would be a phenomenal thing. I can barely even love to the fourth generation, and that's what God says he holds accountable. Our sins. Why? What does this mean? Is God just so mad at us that he punishes our kids for it because he's that mad? No, I think it's this. When I do stupid things, my kids are always watching. All of my attitudes, even the ones I don't think that I have let show, my kids know. They pick up on it. And guess what our children do? If you have them, you know. (laughs) Your kids 
are absolute perfect reflections of you. And sometimes that's scary. Why? Because they're always watching. And they may not always be listening. So there's that. Well, I told them this. Well, that's great. They were watching you do something very different. And they are patterning their lives after their best examples, which is you. And they pick up on those things. Whether they know they are right or wrong, they see you doing them. And so they kind of just do them. I mean, this goes from mannerisms all the way to decisions and how they go through the process of making those decisions. And we may be completely unaware of those things, but we are teaching our children all the time. And when we teach our kids, they teach their kids, and they teach their kids, and hopefully somewhere down the long line, and maybe you're the fourth generation in your family to go, that's really stupid. Maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. I hope you are. If there have been bad things that have been passed down in your family about how you make decisions, about the ideas you have about other people, about how you even read or don't read Scripture, Maybe it's been taught to you that, yeah, we go to church, but our Bible gets open when we go there because there's other people watching, and your children watch that. If they never see you open your Bible, then you're teaching them, we go to church, maybe, and we open our Bible sometimes, but not at home. That's weird. Who would do that? I mean, what kind of crazy person opens their Bible at home when no one's watching, right? right. Wait, people that love God do. And so maybe, and I hope you are that fourth generation or third generation saying, God, I don't want to do it that way anymore. Is there a better way that you have for me? So my second question is this. What family blessings and curses have you experienced? What do I mean by that? I mean this. Again, maybe there are some bad things that you learned from your family. Maybe you were raised in a religious background that has taught you that only the pastor or the priest reads the Bible. And I'll let him do that for me. Because I can't understand it, surely. I can't understand it. Well, that's a lie. That's not true. Maybe you have blessings in your family. I, I'm not just going dark on this. I don't, I don't want you just lamenting, man. My parents were terrible. I, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But I think there are good things that we can learn from everybody. And I do want you paying attention. What blessings have I received from my family? Maybe even if I'm not connected with my parents. And they did this thing. And I also find that this is something in my life that is a gift that God gave them. That maybe they didn't use for his glory. But I will use this for his glory. I can't tell you how many people I know whose mom or dad grew up singing or playing an instrument and didn't make great choices in life and maybe were separated from their children, but that same gift of musicality in this next generation is saying, you know what, I'm going to take that and I'm going to glorify God with it. I'm not going to just do whatever I want with it. I'm going to give it back to God. That's a good thing and that blessing maybe have come through that, but I'm going to do something different with it. So what family blessings and curses are or have you experienced or are you experiencing now? I want you to start praying now that God will reveal to you what you might be completely unaware of, both positively and negatively, and then do something with it. Okay? If you know that there is a way that I am 
communicating that is damaging my family or not communicating that is damaging my family. Maybe God is asking something different of me. Verse 8. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. He said, O Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. It's an interesting time here because there are times that Moses points at the Israelites and said, God, these stiff-necked people are yours. (laughs) Do you deal with them? Here he doesn't do that. Here he says, we are. Why? Because he knows his own heart too. We are a stiff-necked people. We are stubborn and rebellious. But please forgive our iniquity and sins. Moses owns responsibility for the people that he is leading. I don't know what responsibility you need to own for the people you lead. Maybe it's just your family, your kids, whatever that is. It is the easiest thing in the world for us to hide from that and say, we'll just not talk about it as a family. That's, I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to talk about it. Moses didn't do that. He fell on his face before God. And he asked forgiveness for the, his sins, for the people's sins, our iniquity. See, we have a choice to make when it comes to this thing of the stuff that's happening in our lives. We can either justify and excuse those things and say, well, there's a reason they act that way. Or we can humble ourselves and repent and say, God, there is a reason they act that way. I take ownership of it. I repent of it. I will do whatever you ask of me to take responsibility for the things that have separated me from you, that have separated my family from you. You can either justify and excuse things and say, oh, there's a reason for it, and we just don't have time to get into that right now. Or you can say, no, God, I I turn away from those things. I humble myself before you. I own them. But God, I don't know how to fix them, and so I bring them to you. I bring them to your word. Lord, instruct me, and I will do what you say to do. Well, Pastor Dusty, I don't understand what the Bible says to do. Hmm. Have you done what it says to do yet? There are so many things in Scripture that are completely beyond our ability to understand until we do what it says to do. That just are. There were so many things I remember my dad doing growing up that I could not possibly understand what he was doing until I actually started doing those things myself. And then I started understanding why he did it the way he did it. And that is so true of God's word that, you know what, you are not going to understand it. Why why is your understanding the thing keeping you from living in obedience? I think that is the laziest way to live as a Christian. I have to understand before I'll obey God. 
That's stubbornness. That is stiff-neckedness. Is that a word? It kind of sounded weird. I don't know. Maybe I need to repent of that one. I don't, but listen. <laughs> that obedience to what God says to do begins to lead us into understanding. Oh, that's why you said to do that. Oh, that's why you said to not do that. Oh, now I understand because I have started to live in obedience. You have a choice, justify and excuse, or humble and repent. You have a choice. Verse 10, the Lord replied, listen, I am making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. But listen carefully to everything I command you today. Then I will go ahead of you and drive out the Amorites and Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites. Be very careful never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are going. Well, God, I, I don't understand why you would say that. How can I be obedient if I don't understand it? I'm not going to obey until I understand it. I think that's quite literally the attitude that the Israelites maintained because we do see that they make treaties, that they actually intermarry their children with people in the land, that God said, don't do that. And they were saying, well, we didn't understand why. And so we had to understand before we lived in obedience. Instead of saying, God, you've said it. I'm going to live in obedience to it. Do you understand that there are things that are probably better for us to never understand? And that may hit you wrong. I get that. And at the same time, how much better would it have been for Adam and Eve to never understand the knowledge of good and evil? If they had just lived in obedience, how much better would all of reality have been if instead of demanding understanding, they lived in obedience? Well, great. Now we have understanding. Guess what else we have? Sin, death, all kinds of illness, the world falling apart around us. Why? Because we demanded understanding instead of practicing obedience. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> the more I think about that, the more I just see that playing out in life, in individuals' lives, in my own life. Lord, teach us humility and obedience. I want that, God. I want us living in a way that does not require that I understand why you said what you said. It only means that I will choose to obey. What happens when we choose to obey God? I don't know. Passionate love and forgiveness to a thousand generations? That sounds like a great deal. And yet, we demand understanding before obedience. And God says, just obey. I have the absolute best in mind for you. Better than you could ask, think, or imagine. Come with me. Follow me. Obey. He 
Be careful to never make treaties with the people who live in the land where you're going. If you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. Why do traps work? Because there's something we think is going to be good. I, right now, I... Listen, there's a little bit of me, not a little, a big, all of me, that is a Star Wars nerd. And right now, I am remembering Chewbacca looking at that hunk of meat, and then Han Solo going, No, Chewie, no! And then and they all get trapped in the thing. Why? Because <laughs> Chewie saw a free snack. And that's us. We get like, ooh, this, this looks good. This looks easy. This looks free. And God says, no, that's a trap. <laughs> Don't follow their evil ways. So here, here's a little piece of information for you. When God says, don't enter into treaties with them, what does he mean? He means this. This is number four. Treaty equals compromise. What does that mean? Because isn't compromise a good thing? Aren't we supposed to compromise in marriage so that, you know, we both love each other, we're both giving, we're both sacrificing, so we're both better off? Isn't that a good thing? Well, not when he's talking about this. Because God is giving them instruction in how to have right relationship with himself. He says, don't compromise with other people. What would that look like today? If I were to compromise with some other woman, my marriage with my wife would be damaged, maybe irreparably. And that's what God is talking about here. And this is, as you read through this, please understand that God is saying, do not enter into any covenant like marriage or anything else with the people in this land because their filth, their ways will break you and it's a trap. It might look good, it might look fun, it might look like a promise. It's a lie. Treaty equals compromise. And so my question is this, what compromises have you made with sin? What compromises have you made with the world? Maybe you're not thinking of anything right now. Well, then let me ask it this way. What is God convicting you of right now? What have you allowed into your daily life, in the things that you watch, in the conversations you are willing to have, in the music you flood your mind with, in how much screen time you just allow your brain to be filled with other people's thoughts compared to filling it with God's thoughts? What permission and excuse have you given yourself that you would not give someone else. That is a great litmus test for me because I can logic myself around almost any decision because it's a fun exercise. And so sometimes I have to say, okay, if one of my kids made this decision, would I be okay with that? Well, no, absolutely not. Well, then why is it okay for me? Oh, it's not. Okay. What do you allow into your eyes and your ears? For those of you that are married, what have you as a couple decided is okay for you that God did not tell you was okay? I'm not asking us to move towards just religious prudishness. I'm not. I am asking you to ask the Holy Spirit, convict me. What is it that I have made compromise with? 
What treaties have I made with this world? Because, listen, everybody else does it and they're okay. <laughs> it's real easy to look at somebody else's reality from the outside and see exactly what they want us to see instead of seeing the truth of how broken their reality is. And that's not God's desire for us, to live in comparison with others. No, his desire is to live in right relationship with himself and in right relationship with each other. I'm not asking us to move towards some religious prudishness. I'm asking you to let the Holy Spirit take a look under the hood and point out the problems and say, hey, let's address this. This is keeping you from running and keeping up with me. Stop denying them. Let him work. Verse 13 says this, Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. I want my wife to be jealous of her relationship with me. I want her to be able to look other women in the eye and go, he's mine. Back up. I look at every other man that way that even glances at my wife and my daughter now. Like, I have a six-foot hole all ready for you. Turn around. That's an okay kind of jealous that God says he is for us. He wants this beautiful, pure relationship with us. You must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. Then you will accept their daughters who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons. And they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. You must not make any gods of molten metal for yourselves. Number five is this. You choose what you let in. What guides those decisions? Does the world guide what you choose to let in your house? Or does God's word guide what you choose to let in your house? Verse 18. You must celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Just as I commanded you, celebrate the festival annually at the appointed time in early spring in the month of Abib. For that is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. And quite literally that is... God giving us a picture of that is your departure from your old dead life into relationship with me. Number six is this. Remember and celebrate what God has done. He literally gave the Israelites a command. You must celebrate what I have done so that you remember it. Because it's easy to forget. It feels like we have been in this COVID-19 garbage for 90 years already. Why? Because I forget what happened before all of this. It's so easy to go, no, it's, it's the new normal. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> God has done stuff. He is doing things, so let's celebrate what he's doing. Remember and celebrate what God has done so that you know the difference between what God does and what the world does. There's a reason we celebrate what God has done. So that we can remember, nothing else in the world can do what God does. So why would I want what the world has? 
Everybody has that. I want what God has. And that might sound selfish, but that's exactly what God desires for us, is to desire his heart, his wants for us. That's what he wants. He has good things. And I'm not giving you a health, wealth, and prosperity sermon here. I'm telling you that it is better God's way. Then verse 19, and we're going to wrap up. The firstborn of every animal belongs to me, including the firstborn males from the herds and cattle of your flocks and sheep and goats. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. That sounds really mean, and we aren't going to get into all that today, but there's a reason for it. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. You don't get to break your son's neck. Just going to leave that there. No one may appear before me without an offering. Well, are we buying God's love? Is that what this is talking about? No, it's not what it's talking about at all. God is saying this. Sacrifice, sacrifice indicates relationship always. There's always sacrifice in relationship. If you want a relationship with God, what sacrifice are you making? If you want to come before God on a weekly basis... What sacrifice are you making for that? Well, I give up my hour of time. Oh, man. Okay. Big sacrifice. If all you're given is an hour of time that you probably normally would have just been sleeping in, what level of relationship is that making possible between you and God? But, man, if I am not only sacrificing my time, but... I am taking what he has given me as the gifts that he has poured into my life, and I am giving them back to him. I'm taking my, yes, my time, but not just an hour on Sunday, but more time throughout the week to open up his word, to get with my discipleship group, to get with my small group, to get more Jesus in my life. I want to sacrifice. These things, when our heart and mind are right with God, we don't look for ways to get out of making sacrifice. We look for ways of saying, God, what else can I give to you? And I tell you what, I can see that in somebody every single time. When they can't wait for another opportunity to serve the Lord, to love on people, to give of what they have, to financially give to something that is beyond themselves. All those different pieces happen when we say, you know what, my relationship with God is worth any level of sacrifice. And the good news is this, you will never, ever be able to outgive God because he's got it all. <laughs> and he gives lavishly to his people. And when we come back to him and say, God, my relationship with you is paramount. It is more important than anything else, and I will sacrifice for it. Sacrifice indicates relationship always. If there's no sacrifice in your life, there's no relationship between you and God. If you are not sacrificing for your marriage relationship, I would ask you to call a paramedic relationally and say, hey, uh, there's no heartbeat here. Okay, what are you sacrificing to make it happen? Sacrifice indicates relationship always. No sacrifice, no relationship. God wants relationship with us. It's kind of like he made a sacrifice. Oh, that's right. And we can't pay that back. 
but we can say, Lord, I want relationship with you. I'll give you all my time. I'll give you everything I am. I'll give you anything you ask for. And before you even ask God, I'm going to choose to give. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how Moses walked in relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for the fact that to a thousand generations you pour out your unfailing love and forgiveness. And God, you put a limit on your wrath. And Father, I pray that you would break what might be family curses in the lives of the people in this church this morning. God, do work in us that makes it possible for us to be in right relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for those who continue to be faithful in their sacrifice of giving. God, I thank you for those that have chosen to join us in the sacrifice of my church rising and investing in the future of your church long term. But God, I pray right now that if there is something in our hearts that is amiss, that Lord, your Holy Spirit would convict us of that right now and that we wouldn't let it stay, but that we would bring it to you and say, God, we are a stiff-necked people, stubborn in everything we do, and I ask for forgiveness. God, I pray that we will own it, that we won't blame somebody else. We won't just put it on our parents. We'll say, God, it's me. I bring myself to you and I ask for your forgiveness and that God you would renew us that you would give us new life that you would restore right relationship with yourself but also God that you would restore right relationships in our marriages in our families in our extended families because of the love and forgiveness that you provide to a thousand generations God I praise you I thank you for your word God, I ask that you continue to work in every single one of our hearts. Do what you want to do. God, we will not require understanding on our part before we obey. Lord, we choose now that we are going to practice obedience to you. So, Lord, we're going to follow you. We love you. We praise you. We worship you now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.